This paid program may not represent the views of Hubbard Broadcasting Incorporated or Federal News Radio. Statements and opinions of this broadcast are solely those of individual contributors or advertisers as indicated. Federal News Radio does not take responsibility for those statements or opinions and accepts no responsibility or liability for any inaccuracy, errors, or omissions reported during this program. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour, a conversation about management with a government executive who is changing the way government does business. The Business of Government Hour is produced by the IBM Center for the Business of Government, which was created in 1998 to encourage discussion and research into new approaches to improving government effectiveness. You can find out more about the center by visiting us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. And now, the Business of Government Hour. Welcome to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host and managing editor of the Business of Government magazine. The United States Customs and Border Protection's trade enforcement mission is highly complex. It enforces nearly 500 U.S. trade laws and regulations on behalf of 47 federal agencies, facilitate compliant trade, collect revenue, and protect the U.S. economy and consumers from harmful imports and unfair trade practices. Annually, CBP's efforts enable over 30 million commercial transactions, which represent approximately $2.4 trillion in imports and generates over $40 billion in duties, fees, and taxes. No doubt, CBP plays a vital role in supporting the U.S. trade agenda. What is CBP's national strategy to facilitate legitimate trade? How is CBP strengthening comprehensive trade enforcement? And what is the biggest disruption coming to the trade community? We'll explore these questions and so much more with our very special guest, Brenda Smith, Executive Assistant Commissioner, Office of Trade, within U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Brenda, welcome to the show. It's great to have you. Great. It's wonderful to be here. Thank you. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Don Finhagen. Don, welcome. Thank you. Brenda, could you give us an overview of the mission of the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, CBP? When was it created and how has its mission evolved to date? So um, Customs and Border Protection was established in 2003 um, as part of the new, at that point, home, uh, Department of Homeland Security. And our mission, um, which was really built from the components that were pulled together, the U.S. Customs Service, Immigration and Naturalization Service, et cetera, um, was to protect the homeland and to keep America safe, you know, really at its core. Mm-hmm. So you know, as a follow-up, just to give a sense of the scale of operation – for CBP. Uh, could you give us a sense of how many miles of border are covered? How many ports are we talking about? And how many people and items pass through those ports? Sure. So, um, very broad agency, really global reach. We're all around the world. But our primary um, footprint is here in the United States. We have 328 ports of entry. Those ports see on a daily basis over a million people every day, around 75,000 containers that come into the United States and go out of the United States, which equates to roughly $6.5 billion a day of trade. And in terms of miles, we, on the northern and southern borders combined, there's about 6,000 miles and then 2,000 miles of coastline, so so roughly 8,000 miles. So it's it's a big enterprise. And, and that's great to give us a, a general overview of the enterprise. Now I want to talk, uh, switch to your specific office, mm-hmm. the Office of Trade. Um, how is it organized? Can you tell us a little bit about its mission, how it's organized? Organized. The size of your budget relative to the agency's budget, if you can get into that kind of a number, and how many folks you have working with you. 
Sure. So the the Office of Trade is really charged by the commissioner to carry out CBP's trade mission, which really goes to um, the compliance of goods coming into and going out of the United States, as well as the collection of $46 billion a year in duties, taxes, and fees. My office, the Office of Trade, really has a number of functions to be able to do that. We have a policy and program function, which really go to the core programs like the protection of intellectual property rights and the collection of anti-dumping and countervailing duties. We also have a, a large, nearly 400 regulatory auditors that work with the importing community to assess compliance. We have a group that focuses on trade enforcement solely. We have a trade transformation office that is, as it says, looking to transform what we do every day to make it sure it supports the American economy. And then the final group is regulations and rulings that issues essentially guidance to the trade community on what the laws and regulations really mean. Um, CBP has over 60,000 employees with a budget of over $13 billion. Um, I haven't done the calculation, but I know it's well under 5%. But we're lean and mean. Wow, and you, and you, you're, you're such a, a core integral part of of CBP and one of the core missions, and you, you, you touch so much of not only CBP and DHS, but our, our, our nation's uh, trade infrastructure. What What is your day-to-day responsibilities as the EAC of the Office of Trade? How do you see your role playing in there? So a couple of things. Um, one, I really see myself as the primary advocate for the, the trade mission. And it, it goes back to the legacy customs mission. You may not know, but in 1789, in the Fifth Act of Congress, which established the, the U.S. Customs Service to re- essentially pay for revolutionary war debt. And ever since, we have been on the front line, on the borders, protecting the United States, as well as collecting those duties, taxes, and fees. On a day-to-day basis, Um, I not only advocate for compliance with those laws that protect the United States, but also am an advocate and responsible for outreach to the trade community. We have over 350,000 importers, over 13,000 customs brokers, along with carriers and freight forwarders, household names that are responsible for managing supply chains that make sure safe goods come into the United States. So I really interface along with my team with those folks to make sure not only that they're following the law, but when they're bringing in compliant goods, that they can do so quickly, easily, and cheaply so we don't add to their costs. You know, given your roles and responsibility, what would you say are your top three or so management challenges you face, and how have you sought to address those challenges? So a couple of things. Um, one is um, making sure that we are, in fact, carrying our out our security mission. And it, it has taken us a while to understand that economic security is a key part of homeland security. And from the Office of Trade's perspective, our role in economic security is not only making sure that people's quality of life uh, is supported by the goods that travel into and out of the country, but also that domestic industry is able to run their businesses on a level playing field and really compete actively in the global economy. And our role really supports both of those. It goes to jobs. It goes to safe goods on store shelves. And my job, I think, is really to find better ways to keep doing that. Your role right now is so important, both the CBP and and the nation's economy. Can you tell us a little bit about how you you got to where you are today and Obviously, in that journey, what surprised you the most? 
So long and winding road. Um, I come from family that does government service. Uh, father retired from the National Weather Service. My brother works for the Fish and Wildlife Service. And um, they both really advocated for the government as a great place to be able to make a difference. And so um, I spent uh, a number of years on Capitol Hill at the Department of Treasury. But the bulk of my career has been with the U.S. Customs Service and CBP because I love trade. I think trade makes a huge difference or has the ability to make a huge difference in people's lives. And um, so as as um, I've had the opportunity to take on new challenges and um, learn new things, I've really gravitated towards the economic drivers of our quality of life. So I always ask a, a question around leadership to my guests. And, you know, what makes, Brenda, what makes an effective leader? And perhaps you could illustrate how you've been such a leader and who's influenced your leadership style? So I think one of the key things about leadership is the ability to scan the environment, see around corners, and then be able to prepare your organization or or get your organization to a place where it can address the changes that are coming at them. I think back to one of my early mentors, a, a gentleman named Ed Quass, who was a senior leader at the U.S. Customs Service. At the time that I knew him, he set up the first Office of Strategic Trade, which really took customs into the environment of risk management and using data to make good risk-based decisions. Mr. Quass was um, somebody, he's one of the smartest men I ever knew, but he really exhibited the ability to see around corners, to use the capabilities that we had in hand, grow them, and be sure we were ready for the challenge that was coming five years from now. What are the strategic priorities for CBP's Office of Trade? We will ask Brenda Smith, its Executive Assistant Commissioner, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. What is the U.S. Air Force information dominance strategy? How is the Air Force changing the way it does IT? And what is the U.S. Air Force doing to leverage advances of mobile technologies? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Bill Marion, Deputy Chief Information Dominance and Deputy Chief Information Officer, U.S. Air Force. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host. And our guest today is Brenda Smith, Executive Assistant Commissioner, Office of Trade within the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Don Fenhagen. So, Brenda, you've pointed out the mission of CBP and, and recognizing how critical our trade enforcement and facilitation role uh, is in protecting the nation's economic security. What I'd like to talk about now is your office's, um, the Office of Trade, its strategic priorities, and could you give us a sense of CBP's national strategy mm -hmm. to facilitate legitimate trade? 
we have sort of an inherent tension in what we do every day between facilitation and enforcement. And what we've learned over the last couple of years is that we don't balance between these two. They actually complement each other. If we get one right, then the other is easier to do. And, you know, we often use the metaphor of the needle in a haystack. But what we're really trying to do is make that haystack smaller. We do that through data. Um, we do that through using our skills around industry expertise, um, analytical skills, the ability to use data appropriately. And so as we look at the strategic priorities of the Office of Trade and trying to enforce and facilitate, I'm looking at the ability to integrate the data that we have and use it to make good risk-based decisions. So that's a really critical thing. And that means investment in automation, as well as being able to have the right skills to analyze the data and then act on it. I think another critical piece of it is the relationship we have with the private sector. Um, A lot of the information and a lot of the education we get about the industry issues, compliance, uh, enforcement, actually comes straight from the trade community. And so our ability to work with them to gather that information and act on it is really important, as is the ability to collaborate with the private sector to come up with solutions, whether it's a compliance issue or we want to streamline a traditional process that they're telling us just no longer works for them. So I think um, our, our efforts around information integration, around increasing the skills, and then collaborating with the private sector sector would really be sort of the three priorities, enablers that we use to make enforcement and facilitation happen. Trade's one of the most interesting topics in government right now. (laughs) What are the most serious threats and critical trends that are shaping and informing your strategy? So, you know, I, I couldn't agree more that, that trade is a high profile (laughs) issue right now, which is great for us. Um, because it gives us the opportunity to have the conversation about what trade should be. Um, In terms of the challenges that we're working to manage, I think – one is is actually the information integration. So we collect as the government a great deal of information about the trade crossing the border. But there's also a lot of open source information and trying to understand how we use that to predict where problem areas are. So that's sort of one trend as technology gets better and there's a, just an explosion of information trying to understand how to use that. I think the other explosion we're dealing with is the in the volume of trade. Um, And we've seen steady increase as we become more globally interconnected that um, people think nothing of going online and ordering something from all the way around the world and expecting it to show up on their doorstep in 24 hours. That happens all the time. I think with that that increase in volume, we've also seen a change in the trading pattern. People call it e-commerce, but it really is the – facilitation by the internet of a lot more players in trade patterns, significant increase in speed, and a significant increase in the number of transactions we see. So if you recall back in the late 50s, trade went from, you know, burlap-wrapped bundles on a big ship into containers. And now when you drive the New Jersey Turnpike through Newark, you see stacks of containers. Well, now... What we're seeing more is mountains of small packages as they're being shipped from around the world. So our ability to look at a shipment 
It's challenged by being much more dispersed. It's also challenged because we've got a lot more unique players, people who have never done this before and are now importing goods or exporting goods. So we're trying to wrap our heads around and our operational processes around how to manage those flows. So, you know, you mentioned earlier that CBP continues to focus on simplifying and speeding up Mm -hmm. cross-border commerce while reducing the cost of importing and exporting goods. And one way you're doing that, and I'd like to explore the implementation of the international data uh, a trade data system or the single window, right. as they say, system. What what could you tell us about that effort? What are the benefits derived from it? And how does automating the collection and dissemination of information enhance data quality? So um, there's a couple of drivers that have led us in the United States to making the commitment, actually the president making the commitment to what is known as the single window. Um, There's an international standard that uh, calls on um, governments to establish one place for all information required by a government about goods crossing borders to come into, and then the government to respond to that information from that one place. And so it's, it's, it is literally a single window in some countries where uh, paper forms about exports get submitted into the the teller behind the window. And in other places, it is, in fact, an electronic portal like we've just built here in the United States. What we did in building of that single window was to take the information requirements of 47 different government agencies and package them in one package. And in many cases, it allowed us to transition from a paper-based form collection of that information into an electronic uh, receptacle. Um, And so one, what we call a message set, one package of information could be submitted to the government. The government would look at that information, having dispersed it to all the agencies that were interested, and then come back with one response about whether we needed to stop that shipment and take a closer look at it, whether it was free to go on down the road, or whether we needed to collect more information. And so if you're sitting in the private sector, instead of dealing with, let's say, five or six different government agency systems or paper forms to collect information, you're dealing with one. And when you get the the green flag that says your cargo is safe and compliant and good to move down the road, then that's good. That gives you predictability, and you don't have to call five different places looking for an answer. And so um, what you may have picked up on is this is not just about automation. It's about the operational processes that go along with the automation so that as a government, we're presenting one face at the border, and our private sector partners can get information and get decisions from one place rather than multiple places. But it wasn't easy, was it? And I know you let it. And so what I would like to talk about is the actual implementation and some of the significant challenges you faced uh, or that was faced in doing and developing the single window system and how you address them. But even more importantly, perhaps you could tell us more about how you approach this effort and what lessons you've learned. Mm-hmm. Sure. So it, for me, was a real fundamental opportunity um, to bring together a lot of the skills I've developed over my government career. But really, um, it was about understanding how important automation generally, but particularly this system that integrated requirements from around the government into one place could make a difference in our economy. 
Some of the challenges really stemmed from the many different missions that we try to execute as a government, whether it's food safety, drug safety, the safety of children's toys, the security of containers coming into the United States. And how do we integrate and address all of those missions? Because we have government employees that are passionate about executing those missions. So how do we work together to allow all of us to execute our missions? And so it took a lot of conversation. It took a lot of trying to identify the best practices that we could use as a government. For example, do we really need a paper form with a blue ink signature collected on every transaction. And as a government, we had to make the decision that, you know, if we get a digital signature, that's probably okay, as long as we have traceability through our system. So coming overcoming those hurdles the way we've always done business and coming together to prioritize building a collaborative system and then working with the private sector to roll it out in a way that they could ingest and build their own systems to connect. And then that together we could train all of our employees. And and our guess is there are probably close to a million people that had to be trained on this system um, because there are so many people that use it. And it was a new way of doing business. And they all had to be trained and they all had to understand the requirements. And so um, a lot of it was simple change management, but on a, on a really large scale. And, you know, speaking on s- of simple, your, your ports of entry are, are really complex places, you know, whether it's seaports, airports, you name it. Can you tell us a little bit more about how CBP is harmonizing the processes across the ports of entry, supporting a unified facilitation and enforcement posture, and maybe touch on a little bit about how the centers of ex- expertise and excellence are contributing to that? Yeah, so that's exactly what I was going to touch on. So um, a couple of years ago, I um, had the opportunity to lead our trade transformation 1.0 our effort back uh, six or seven years ago. And one of the things that the trade said to us was, you know, uniformity from one port to another is our greatest challenge because every time you make different decisions one place to the other, it costs us money, it leads to unpredictability, and it's inefficient. So we want you to develop one place, call it a center of, of excellence, that you can make decisions that that impact the country that you implement on a national basis. And so we thought through it and we thought about some of the benefits to us, like if we had one decision, that means that we didn't have 30 people trying to assess the same issue and one person could assess the issue and make a decision for everyone. Um, We also figured out that if we wanted to work with an industry, rather than expecting, let's say, the high-tech industry to go to 30 different ports and educate the people in those ports about their products, um, they could go to one place, the center of excellence and expertise. And so we also took the opportunity to understand what policies were needed that would bring our national approach together, what automation was needed, and we really built that in our automated commercial environment, as well as what where the gaps were. And I think by focusing on 10 industry-based centers of excellence and expertise, we've organized ourselves in such a way that there are focal points for, for industrial centers. Um, we have the ability to educate 
We have the ability to segment the risk for that industry. We know who the good guys are, and we think we know who the bad guys are. And then we can take um, coordinated action to address those risks. The trade loves it because the good guys get facilitation even more. And we're, uh, we're hearing from the bad guys that, that um, our enforcement efforts are working. So. And, and so, you, and so, you touched on some of the the, the risk segmentation that you're that you're doing. Are, are you using any advanced technology to enable any of the, the lower risk trade functions? So we're we're um, really excited about a lot of the opportunities that exist now. So we are just completing a a major effort around completing the automated commercial environment. We call it ACE. And that's been a 15-year project. Just about done. Um, Really exciting. And I think while there have been hiccups along the way, people now love it. We have the ability, though, to use the information gathered in ACE and a number of other systems to predict where the risk is going to be next and to implement things like risk-based bonding strategies where we charge more from entities that may not play by the rules or look like they're not playing by the rules or don't pay their bills. To be able to do that at the size that I've already described, the complexity, we can't do it by hand, or we can't do it on an Excel spreadsheet. We've got to have some pretty high-powered technology. And so we're working um, with a couple of companies. We're working with academia to identify how do we apply technology of today to the information that we have. You've mentioned, you've touched on it a couple of times, um, the use of uh, of analytics and data to really to take what you can from all this information you've put and inform your decision-making a more effective way. So if you could maybe delve a little deeper into how you're exactly using analytics, but more importantly, what are some of the challenges you're facing in trying to get where you know you need to be? So um, lots of good work underway. And and I mentioned Ed Quas a few yeah. minutes ago. Um, and he really was a big proponent of using the data that we have in our systems. And we've been very much automated since the mid-1980s, um, which is very early for a government organization. And he advocated using the data um, to identify really on an entity-by-entity basis where the risk was. But I think where we are now is being able to take that information and dive even deeper and do do the link analysis, to use another buzzword from today, to understand that when when a corporate entity um, with a pattern of bad behavior suddenly disappears, but their corporate officers pop up as somebody else, that we have to be able to find that new entity and understand that it is that old entity, and they are likely to have the same pattern of bad behavior, and we need to get in front of them. Um, so those, we call it um, um, counter networks, mm-hmm. and, and trying to identify the networks, and then being able to take action against the whole network instead of just one small piece of it is an ongoing challenge, but it is something that we need to get ahead of in order to really do solid risk segmentation. How is CBP pursuing innovative enforcement strategies? We will ask Brenda Smith, Executive Assistant Commissioner of the Office of Trade within the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour.
The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology, a companion piece to a more detailed report by the Technology CEO Council. That report outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Driving change in the federal government requires more than new policies or the infusion of new technologies. It requires a sustained focus on implementation to achieve positive and significant results. This IBM Center special report provides a roadmap for government leaders to do just that. Download Transforming Government through technology and all IBM Center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Brenda Smith, Executive Assistant Commissioner, Office of Trade within the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Don Fenhagen. So, uh, Brenda, uh, CBP has undergone reorganization and realignment recently. How has that reorganization helped transform the agency? But more importantly, how does it affect your office? So, um a couple of years ago, I think then Commissioner Karlikowski recognized that our agency had grown so much over time around many of us who'd been in place over those years. And we needed to to lift our heads up and understand that we were not running a 12,000-person agency anymore. We were five times that. And we needed a better way to make decisions as an operational agency. And so we went during our, our most recent realignment, um, kind of on paper from, um, I think the count was 24 direct reports to the commissioner, um, now to six, essentially, at the executive assistant commissioner uh, level. And I think that was useful, but I think almost more important was the charge that the commissioner gave to his direct reports, which were to be corporate advisors and strategic thinkers on behalf of the agency. So while, for example, I represent the Office of, of Trade, my charge was not just to represent trade or the, the Office of Trade or the trade mission, but more to think about how the agency should work writ large. And I think that shifted us from being very stovepiped into a more formal governance process that focused the executive assistant commissioners on more strategic decisions, budget allocations across the agency, not just for our office, or personnel policies and impact across the agency. And that's been, I think, a really useful thing for the agency. We're still working through the governance. You know, it's a learned skill. But I think we have the pieces in place that are allowing us to make and engage on a more strategic basis. For the Office of Trade, um, one of the things that I was really excited about is that as we shifted from our legacy agency missions and structures in the early 2000s, the trade mission was a, a legacy that kind of got lost a little bit. Our focus was on anti-terrorism, and as I mentioned earlier, we didn't have a good sense of how economic security played a role in national security. But I think we've evolved over time. And one of the things that my colleagues 
came to the conclusion was that the Office of Trade really was an operational office, meaning that of the four mission sets at Customs and Border Protection, trade had to be one of the four and needed to be a priority mission. While the trade mission doesn't have the footprint of the Border Patrol, um, gets combined with the immigration mission at the ports of entry, it is a really critical mission to homeland security as well as to revenue collection. And so, but having a seat at the table, um, the ability to advocate and the ability to engage was really critical and came directly out of our most recent realignment. That's great. And I guess that, that touches on the next the next uh, topic. You have, a, you have a dual role as both an enabler of trade and a regulator of trade. Can you tell us more about how that giving trade a seat at the table uh, has has added to your efforts to strengthen comprehensive trade enforcement, working closer with the other mission areas within CBP? Sure. So one of the changes in our culture, I would say, over the last 10 years has been the degree to which um, the trade mission, the folks involved in the trade mission, collaborate with the private sector and stakeholders around the government. So I talk about the consultation continuum that we used to have. And the consultation used to be um, we would say we consulted, but we would drop stuff on the private sector with no warning. And then we moved to a, a situation where we would talk about um, consultation, and it meant that the night before we were going to issue something, we'd give them a draft, ask, ask them if they had any comments, and then not take any of their comments. Well, now our collaboration approach is really guided by um, the word co-creation. And very often we will take a problem set, put it on the table, and the table actually has representatives from the private sector, other agencies, as well as Customs and Border Protection. And we will solve the problem together, understanding that each of us has motivations and needs that we have to address, as well as limitations. But at the end of the day, what we're looking for is our solutions that work for all of us. And I think that's been um, a way that we've been able to go towards better enforcement, go towards streamlined trade. I think being part of a large agency like Customs and Border Protection allows us also to use resources and use best practices like targeting. So we started targeting really in the trade realm many, many, many years ago. But after 9-11, we got very good very fast. And now our National Targeting Center is really one of the crown jewels and one of the crown capabilities of what we do every day. And I think on the trade side, we've been able to now learn from the National Targeting Center. We've been able to use those assets. We have an integrated trade targeting network that is joined at the hip, um, which is really good. I think the intelligence capability, as we grow you know, in the the law enforcement and uh, intelligence realm, we've been able to leverage how that works and and how we gather information and share information as an agency. So I think there's huge value in having that sort of security-based law enforcement environment to work within. In your efforts to enhance the detection, interdiction, and disruption of illegal border, border activities, trade activities, um, are you doing anything to expand the mobile and rapid interdiction capabilities uh, to respond to these changing threats? Yeah. So I think um, for both enforcement as well as facilitation, one of our core capabilities is that information that we own. From my perspective, it doesn't 
do us a lot of good in terms of speed or instant detection to have that information parked on a desktop away in, a, in an office building somewhere. So bringing information and having our employees out where the cargo is really critical, which means mobile. And right. we've, I think, made some really good progress at, at CBP in our agriculture side. Our agriculture specialists are outfitted with tablets that are, are hardened. And so if you drop them on a, on a terminal or a pier, you're, you're going to be okay. But I think that that's using mobile technology to get employees and information out into the field is really critical. I think we have opportunities, and I was out in um, Silicon Valley about a year ago um, talking to startups along with some other colleagues from CBP, and I laid out a challenge around something like being able to track or identify legitimate goods. So think about um, a package of semiconductor chips that's made somewhere overseas and then goes through a supply chain. Um, rather than having to stop that shipment, open up the box, and and send off a sample to a lab for testing to make sure it's it's a not a counterfeit good, wouldn't it be great if we would be able to tag that shipment with RFID or a barcode or something that couldn't be counterfeited itself and be able to run that through a port of entry, read it on its pass-through, and not have to stop that shipment to know that it came from a legitimate maker of semiconductor chips. So I think there's lots of opportunities to use technology in the field, um, and we've just scratched the surface. February 2016, that probably that, that probably rings a bell to you. That's the Trade Facilitation and Trade Enforcement Act. It was signed into law. There were many requirements in that law. A year after, how has the law helped CBP to strengthen trade enforcement? What's that done for your, your area of expertise? And you know, what does the future hold in that area? So that passage of that piece of legislation was really seminal for CBP. It was our first authorization since the agency was established, so 15, 16 years. Um, and there, I think, was a lot of pent-up demand, legislative <laughs> demand. So it's a very big law um, covering a lot of ground. I think we counted and we had 30 reports, studies, strategies, or plans required by the law. But almost really more important were two things. Um, one was the guidance that we got from our congressional stakeholders that um, enforcement of trade laws was really critical to the economy and facilitation as important. So that was one piece. The other thing that we got from that law were some new tools and some, some new ways of thinking about some of our enforcement challenges. So I would point specifically to the Enforce and Protect Act, which required us to take a new look at the way we um, addressed allegations of not just noncompliance, but evasion of our trade laws. And then when information was brought to CBP about possible evasion, we were then put on timelines to execute our analysis, and then take enforcement action to deter or stop uh, future evasion. And then, and this is a little unusual in the law enforcement environment, we had to report back to the person that brought the allegation about what we did. And that's a little unusual. So 
We were a little resistant at first, but I think we've really wrapped our head around it with the help of the private sector who said, look, this is a good thing. This is a really good thing. And there's tools here that you can use that will help you do a better job of enforcing the law. So um, it's been a big change for us. There's still a lot in that law that we are teasing out. I think we recognize that we've got to invest to make some of the aspirational parts of the law a reality, invest in people, invest in automation, but we are getting there. I want to stay on the uh, trade enforcement. Um, and trade in counterfeit and pirated goods, and specifically. Um, how are you combating intellectual property rights violations, and are there any new and innovative ways to combat the issue in general? So we have done... Um, a lot of work around protecting intellectual property rights for for years. Um, most of it involves working very closely with rights holders, the people that actually create the intellectual property, to understand what it is that they've created and understand actually what it looks like. So when our um, inspectors or officers open a container full of goods and there's a hologram on a battery okay. – they understand what a legitimate hologram looks like and what that battery looks like. That sort of education from those rights holders is really important. The fact that they register it, the fact that they give us product manuals so we know what we're looking at, really critical. We do have some challenges, though, because in our world today, electronics – are very technical. And our officers and our commodity specialists are trained, but they are not the technical experts on the newest model of, of a smartphone. So that's that's a bit of a challenge, um, is, is keeping up with the new technology. I think the other challenge that we have in this environment is being able to take an enforcement action that actually deters bad behavior. Mm -hmm. So we talked earlier about e-commerce and the fact that we've gone from container loads of counterfeit goods to small packages, multiple, let's say 1,000 or 2,000 small packages of counterfeit smartphones. The time that we have to spend to make a seizure, and we had 32,000 seizures of counterfeit goods last year. To, the time it takes to seize one smartphone in a package is the same amount of time it takes to make a seizure of a container load full of counterfeit watches. So we're able to do a lot fewer of relative to the volume. And we know that we can't seize our way. We can't make enough of an impact. So trying to find innovative ways. So one of the things, for example, we've been working to, to pilot is something called voluntary abandonment, where we th see something that we think is counterfeit. We put out a, a request to the importer to say, hey, is this yours? And can you show us your licensing agreement? If we never hear from them, we assume it's counterfeit. And we've worked very closely with FedEx, DHL, and UPS, um, where many of these packages come through. And they've been very supportive of our efforts around interdicting counterfeit goods and then destroying them mm -hmm. if, if they are voluntarily abandoned. So we're trying to get really creative. Um, but the idea is that when we take an enforcement action, it needs to hurt enough so people stop the bad behavior. Yeah. So, you know, you mentioned making sure the folks working for you have a certain level of technical uh, competence. And I'd like you to talk about CBP's Sharpening Trade Expertise Initiative. How does it ensure that your workforce is equipped with the necessary skills and knowledge? So we laid out um, 
about a year ago, a five-year roadmap. We knew there was a gap between what our trade personnel, and there's there's about 2,500 full-time trade personnel at Customs and Border Protection with close to 10,000 who touch cargo and need to understand sort of trade issues writ large. But we knew that there was a gap in basic training, advanced training, and then um, I'll call it economic development. But it's just that idea of constantly refreshing your knowledge and then making sure that we had leaders in among our trade personnel. And we laid out that series of four tracks over a five-year period to refresh our basic training and our advanced training, not just sending them to our training academy in Charleston, South Carolina, but using things like um, web-based training or um, YouTube videos. Um, Also taking advantage of the leadership training that CBP has made investments in through our advanced training center up in Harpers Ferry. and teaching sort of a trade component by using case studies, by um, exposing our folks through um, job rotations or participation in special projects, or we hope um, fellowships out at private sector companies to learn how they do business. Because what we're really looking for are individuals that have um, analytical skills, communication skills, Um, collaboration skills, and understand how business is done in the 21st century so that they can work with the trade to make sure that our processes support trade, but also so they can get ahead of those bad guys that are always looking for the next new way to to break the law. You know, I I, I often talk, and you've mentioned this a couple of times, um, but I often ask my guests about how they leverage partnerships and collaboration to improve operations and mission outcomes. And I know you you do with the private sector. I know you do with the 47 agencies that you referenced earlier. You know, I'd like for you to elaborate on that, if you will. But more importantly, how do you do it with, you know, international partners? Do you folks get together with the different equivalent offices uh, in the EU or in different countries around the world? So, so we do. And I, I actually, I want to touch on, before I get sure. to the international side, mm-hmm. touch on a couple of groups that have been really important for us. We have a, a very active um, federal advisory committee. We call it the COAC. It's the Commercial Operations Advisory Committee. And for me, it's like having 20 free consultants, very highly educated consultants. The COAC uh, is an advisory group, advisory to the the Commissioner of Customs about trade issues, what's going well, what's not going well, and how to fix it. And our COAC, which is also supported by a number of working groups in which we pull in other representatives of the private sector, to work through a strategic agenda of where the gaps are in our mission, where our operations could be improved, and from a policy perspective, how do we want to advocate for a stronger economy? Extraordinarily helpful. We have a similar group at the tactical level, specifically around automation, called the Trade Support Network. And I think that those two groups, they take a lot of time to manage, a lot of time to engage with, but really produce really good results. We've seen and taken many of the ideas coming out of the conversations with those groups into the international environment. Mm -hmm. The World Customs Organization is the umbrella organization for the 
close to 200 member countries, all with customs administrations, and customs being one of the traditional functions of government. Um, the World Customs Organization has been around a long time and plays a very active role in doing that looking around corners and how do we strategically prepare for the next challenge. We also have a number of efforts, and I would point specifically to Canada and Mexico. Our North American customs partnership is very strong, very active. We share information, we share best practices, we have conversations about everything ranging from employee resilience to uh, trade targeting to how our anti-dumping and countervailing systems work. So it's a really good partnership with Canada and Mexico. We, of course, have bilateral relationships as well. But what's very interesting to me is the connection that our private sector partners have made for us between some of the best practices we use here, like real collaboration with the private sector, to bring those best practices to partners around the world, that if you're, a, let's say, a Walmart or a Target, you're not only doing business in the United States, but you're importing and exporting through many countries around the world. If they have a customs approach that is collaborative and transparent and works in a similar fashion to the way it does here, you only have to set up a limited number of approaches. You don't have, have to have a different operating manual for every country around the world. That saves them time. That saves them money. So a lot of private sector support for international harmonization, and we really try to drive that. What is the biggest disruption coming to the trade community? We will ask Brenda Smith, Executive Assistant Commissioner of the Office of Trade within the U.S. Customs and Border Protection, when our conversation continues on the Business of Government Hour. What is the U.S. Air Force information dominance strategy? How is the Air Force changing the way it does IT? And what is the U.S. Air Force doing to leverage advances of mobile technologies? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Bill Marion, Deputy Chief Information Dominance and Deputy Chief Information Officer, U.S. Air Force. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m. The federal government can reduce costs while improving services by adopting private sector cost reduction strategies and technologies to achieve similar benefits in government. Check out the IBM Center special report, Transforming Government Through Technology. It outlines how technology-based reforms can reduce federal costs by more than a trillion dollars over the next decade. Download Transforming Government Through Technology and all center reports at businessofgovernment.org. Welcome back to the Business of Government Hour. I'm Michael Keegan, your host, and our guest today is Brenda Smith, Executive Assistant Commissioner, Office of Trade within the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. Also joining our conversation from IBM is Don Van Hagen. Obviously, your industry and trade as a whole is changing so fast. Uh, it's, ch it's changing as fast as technology is changing. You have things like e-commerce, blockchain, the gig economy, drones. What's the biggest disruption right now coming to the Office of Trade and probably trade as a whole? Oh, you know, I, it, I think it's around technology because we're so excited about the opportunities. Um, we, we really were passionate about doing our job better. And anything that can help us 
not only be more efficient, but do the work we know needs to be done, uh, we're excited about. And so, um, you know, we're looking at blockchain. We're looking at predictive analytics. We're looking at link analysis, you know, some of much of which we've used in other areas within Customs and Border Protection. But we'd like to, to kind of push the envelope and see how we can use it um, applied to the trade mission. So I'm, I'm most excited about those tech, technological opportunities. You know, moving a little bit down the road here, I mean, integrity is at the soul of all law enforcement agencies, and obviously you guys are a big law enforcement agency. To that end, would you elaborate on your comprehensive integrity strategy and the importance of individual integrity in the success of your agency as a whole? Sure. So um, – Integrity, as as you um, mentioned, is critical to any law enforcement agency. It is one of our core values, um, and and it is a challenge. You know, we've got sixty thousand people really spread around the world, um, and so the idea that we are good stewards of not only the the taxpayers' dollars, but also the trust, the public trust. Um, I think is really important for any law enforcement agency, but but we take that responsibility really um, to heart. And Commissioner Kurlikowski, our our most recent commissioner, um, and his deputy Kevin McLean, and have really I think led the way in articulating that a key part of earning and keeping that public trust is transparency. And so as an agency, we've tried very hard to be responsive when there's a problem, but very transparent about what we're doing to share information not only about the end result, but about the process we use to get to that end result. Whether we have a use of force issue on the southern border to are we um, evaluating um, an anti-dumping allegation and taking action on it appropriately? I think that that transparency and recognizing that um, the way that we will be able to continue to use our authorities for the good of the American public is by earning and keeping that public trust. And uh, it's for us, like I said, integrity, a core value, and, and making sure that we are responsive to the public in that area, really, really important to being able to keep doing our job well. Yeah, well, you got some recognition. In a, we mentioned earlier the single window yeah. effort, and you, you and Phil Landfried uh, are recognized finalists, I believe, in the uh, Samuel J. Hyman Service to America Awards, the Sammies, as we know them. What does that mean to you both? And more importantly, what does it mean to the agency? It's a huge honor. I, I, I take it as a huge honor. I mentioned, you know, I come from a family of government servants, and um, the, the Service to America medals are a recognition not so much for us as individuals, not even for this project that we are so proud of, but but really as a symbol of the work that public servants do and um, the contributions that given the right level of support, which we certainly had for the single window all the way from the president on down, that we can do amazing, complex, really important work as government and um, show um, support 
our country in ways that no one ever thought possible. And I think that's what the Service to America medals recognize. For CBP, and CBP's been um, – CBP is a great um, – I would say sandbox for being able to um, take opportunities to be innovative, to be creative, to take risks, try new things, and then get the support to actually um, implement and grow those new things. It's it's part of our DNA, and so I, it would be great to say I was historic, or we was historic by getting you know the first nomination. But for CBP, we've had several oh, and 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 winners. Kevin McAleenan, um we had a, another several projects that that have been finalists as well as winners. And and so I'm I'm hoping I'm I'm one of of many. But but it is just a huge honor for for Phil and I and for the agency. So. Thank you for asking. Oh, about and, it. and it's a nice segue into um, into getting some advice from you. So, Brenda, what advice would you give someone who's thinking about a career in public service? So, my dad gave me advice many years ago that when I was trying to figure out what I wanted to be when I grew up, and he said, "If you want to do something in which you will have significant impact." with more authority, more resources, um, and really be able to make a difference, work for the federal government. He caveated a little by saying you have to find an organization that will support you taking on challenges, will give you opportunities to grow and to learn and to lead. Um, But if you look around by talking to people and finding organizations that have those opportunities and support their people, you will be able to make a productive career in which you can contribute. And that was the path I took. I, I looked around and uh, and ended up at the, the custom service. And I will tell you over the 20 five years I've been with customs. Um, I've had tremendous number of opportunities. Always uh, look forward to getting up in the morning uh, and and going to work. There have been days where it's been a little more challenging, but, um, but I've always had the opportunity to take on new challenges and learn new things and, and at the end of the day, go home feeling like I made a contribution. So that's, that's the advice I would give. Look, Terrific look advice. for that. Thanks for coming in and and, and joining us today for a really good conversation. But more importantly, uh, Don and I would like to thank you for your dedicated service to the country. Thank you. It was a pleasure to be here and really an opportunity to, to sort of reflect on the things that, that CPP does and to share um, some of the things we're really proud of. This has been the Business of Government Hour, a conversation with Brenda Smith, Executive Assistant Commissioner of the Office of Trade within the U.S. Customs and Border Protection. My co-host from IBM has been Don Finhagen. Be sure to join us next week for another informative, insightful, and in-depth conversation on improving government effectiveness. For the Business of Government Hour, I'm Michael Keegan, and thanks for joining us. This has been the Business of Government Hour. Be sure to visit us on the web at businessofgovernment.org. There you can learn more about our programs and get a transcript of today's conversation. Until next week, it's businessofgovernment.org.
What is the U.S. Air Force information dominance strategy? How is the Air Force changing the way it does IT? And what is the U.S. Air Force doing to leverage advances of mobile technologies? Join host Michael Keegan as he explores these questions and more with Bill Marion, Deputy Chief Information Dominance and Deputy Chief Information Officer, U.S. Air Force. Tune in Mondays at 11 a.m. for the Business of Government Hour on Federal News Radio, 1500 a.m.